there's a lot of nastiness going on over there. And it, it's totally natural, again, because people were locked down for three years and they want to be not locked down. So how does this resolve itself? Well, I think the Chinese government is, they're not going to bend to the will of the people, but there is going to be a compromise of sorts here, I believe. And ultimately, China will reopen fully in 2023. It will be a gradual and phased reopening, but it will be a full reopening by the end of 2023. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, it was a good Thanksgiving, Aaron. How was yours? It was good. We, we did the fried turkeys. We smoked some geese, uh, fried some ducks, uh, a lot of food. <laughs> a lot of food. That's what Thanksgiving is supposed to be about. We had we had a great Wellington over here, as you know from my last episode. That's right, here. no turkey for you. Turkey fan, so. But yes, had a, had a good Wellington. It was a tasty, tasty, tasty Thanksgiving and a, a good shopping weekend and all that stuff. So ready to talk about it today. Mm. Did you cook anything? Let's move on to the next question. All right. Well, good to hear and looking forward to getting into all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, inflation, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get hyper growth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator and lifelong learner and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. A ton of fun topics today. Kicking things off this episode, let's start with China. Massive protests over there right now. The Chinese people are angered about the government's commitment to its zero COVID policy. Finally, after three years, the Chinese people are taking to the streets to express their displeasure. What does all of this action mean for the stock market and specifically Chinese stocks like NEO? Right. Yeah. So uh, shocker of the uh, decade, um, when you lock people in their homes for three straight years, they get pissed. Um, that's what's happening over in China. They, they've not developed good enough vaccines to control COVID-19 in a way that we've controlled it here in, in America or pretty much everywhere else in the world. Uh, they've maintained the zero COVID policy and it looked like they were going to ease zero COVID, but then as they were easing zero COVID, uh, infections soared and people started dying actually again from it. So from COVID-19 and boom, they kind of went back to some major lockdowns. And there was a rumor of a, a building over there that actually caught fire. And then there were lockdowns and they weren't able to get out of the building. And those, you know, five people died, I think, from that incident. So um, there's a lot of nastiness going on over there. And it, it's totally natural, again, because people were locked down for three years and they want to be not locked down. So how does this resolve itself? Well, I think the Chinese government is they're not going to bend to the will of the people, but 
there is going to be a compromise of sorts here, I believe. And ultimately, China will reopen fully in 2023. It will be a gradual and phased reopening, but it will be a full reopening by the end of 2023. So I think that's positive for the Chinese economy. I think that's positive for the global economy. And I think it's positive for the global stock market because I believe that, especially the U.S. stock market, I believe that as China does reopen, the Chinese economy will re-strengthen because you have to remember it's going to reopen against the backdrop of the uh, central bank, the People's Bank of China, PBOC, having very loose monetary conditions. So they've been cutting rates, they've been injecting stimulus to keep the property market afloat during this, this tough time. So you're going to get a reopening in China in 2023 that'll probably resemble the reopening we got in the U.S., in 2020, 2021, that's when, you know, a bunch of pent up demand got unleashed and it coupled with very loose monetary conditions to create an economic boom, almost too much of an economic boom. So I think you're going to get a pretty big economic boom in China in 23 and 24. And I think that is going to be a boom for the global stock market, especially the U.S. stock market, because it's going to decrease the, the strength of the dollar. The dollar has gotten very strong because the U.S. economy appears to be the only economy in the world that is actually doing OK right now. Europe's in shambles. Southeast Asia's in shambles. India's act, India's doing pretty well. China's in shambles. So the U.S. economy is relatively uh, significantly stronger than other economies right now. And that's leading to outsized strength of the dollar. If China does have a massive reopening wave that leads to a big economic boom in 23 and 24, that'll lessen the strength of the dollar, increase the strength of the yuan, and will significantly help the multinational companies in the United States that sell, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent into China or 20, 30, 40 percent to Europe. Uh, those companies are going to all of a sudden have FX headwinds, turn into FX tailwinds. Their revenues and earnings are going to go higher and that should help their stock prices. So I think it's a, it's a boon for the U.S. stock market if China starts to reopen. Um, I also, you know, you asked about Chinese stocks, Neo and specifically um, I just pulled up an index or a chart of the, the Hang Seng uh, index, so Hong Kong stock market, and um, looked at the, the forward P multiple on the index. And in on October 28th, so right before Halloween, the index traded as low as 8.3 times forward earnings. That, you know, over the past, let's see, past decade, it's averaged about 11 times, got as high as 14 times. So it's never, it's never been a really expensive market, but 8.3 times forward earnings is really cheap. For context, Hang Seng dropped or bottomed in 2008, 2009 at around 8.6 times forward earnings. So the forward P multiple that Hong Kong Chinese tech stocks got to in holler during Halloween of 2022 was lower than the 4P multiple they bottomed at during the great financial crisis. So these stocks got to bottoming dirt cheap bargain discount value territory. They got as cheap as they get. And now they're rebounding with, you know, the reopening on deck. So I think that that creates a recipe for Chinese stocks to perform exceptionally well in 2023 and 2024. You're having accelerating economic, should get accelerating economic activity, which should lead to accelerating earnings growth for these firms converging with all-time low valuation multiples. As of right now, we're at 10.1 times forward earnings. So still pretty cheap, much or below the 11, 12 times you've seen over the past decade. So we're still pretty cheap. So I think this rally has a runway. I think these stocks can go higher behind multiple expansion and uh, better than expected earnings growth in 2023 and 2024. So I think what's going on in China is a mess right now, but I think it's a mess that leads to a good outcome. 
and will allow the Chinese economy to recover, allow Chinese stocks to recover, and ultimately provide a boost to the to the U.S. stock market as well. So you mentioned how the Chinese government isn't necessarily going to placate to the people taking to the streets. What mm-hmm. is the catalyst going to be that's going to segue into this rally in 23, 24, and beyond? You understand, it, it's, um, it's not... There's more than just placating the people. The Chinese government is also very prideful about their economy and their economic strength and their vigor there. And they are losing that, significantly losing that. Uh, the Chinese economy has been crushed ever since the COVID-19 pandemic arrived. And a lot of it is because of the zero COVID policy. Now, that is a short term thing. But the long term implication here is that because of zero COVID, manufacturing activity has been really, really weak. And U.S. companies are pulling out of China. That has long-term implications for the Chinese economy. China doesn't want that. China doesn't want Apple to go from China to India. China doesn't want these companies to go, doesn't want TSMC to start building in Arizona. China doesn't want those things. So they're seeing these things happen and the government's starting to realize, okay, we have to do something here to save our economy, not just from this near-term hiccup, they don't care about the near-term hiccup, from a long-term secular demise defined by all these companies that came to China to build are now pulling out. And that's a 10-year, 15-year, 20-year trend. They don't want that to happen. But at the same time, they don't want to appear like they're just bending to the will of the people. The, you know, the government's got to have the iron fist and be, be strong. So they're kind of walking a fine line here. Of, okay, we got to play strong, but we also have to reopen because if we don't reopen, we're setting ourselves and our economy up for failure over the next 10 years. So I think they're trying to thread the needle here. And that's what's going to happen over. That's why I say it's going to be a phased and gradual reopening. They're not going to listen to these protests and all of a sudden by Christmas, they're fully reopened. No. They're going to listen to these protests. They're going to quell them, let them calm down. And then in a month or two, they're going to be like, okay, now we're going to start to reopen here and then reopen here and then reopen here. It's going to be a gradual reopening. So the ostensible appearance is not going to be that the Chinese government is bending the will of the people, but rather the Chinese government is put down the protest and is now deciding on their own accord to go forward with the reopening. And I think that's what has to happen. So we have to get the protests to calm down. China has to look like they're in control. The government has to look like they're in control. And it's not the people driving it, but rather President Xi and company driving it. And I think you're going to get that. You're going to get a calming of the protests over the next month or two and a starting of the re- of a real reopening in the first quarter, second quarter of 2023 that lasts throughout 2023 and continues in 2024. And that allows the economy to rebound. Okay. Well, while they're protesting over in China, we're shopping over here in the U.S. where Now, one day removed from the whole Black Friday, Cyber Monday shopping extravaganza. I definitely did some holiday shopping, contributing to the early numbers that look good, right? I mean, you've been bullish on retail stocks going into the holiday season, specifically e-commerce stocks. Do these numbers increase your conviction in stocks like Shopify here? Yeah, so Black Friday, Cyber Monday, holiday season was supposed to be terrible. And it made sense that it's supposed to be terrible. I mean, consumer confidence has been plunging. We're at like basically all-time low levels on consumer confidence, depending on the, the survey you look at. Um, inflation is super high, so prices are super high. So, yes, you're getting 40%, 30% sales, but 40 30% sales on things that have already <laughs> risen dramatically in price over the past year. Um, 
our portfolios are crushed, right? For the average, you know, again, I go back to the, the uh, FT article, Financial Times article that cited, I believe it was JP Morgan data. Their average client portfolio was down 45% in 2022. So, you know, the indices are down 20, 30%, but, you know, your average Joe is down 45%. So your, your consumers was going into this holiday season not feeling great. Their excess savings have been wiped out. Their stock portfolios are crushed. Everybody's talking about a recession. The cost of debt is significantly higher. So if they have a mortgage or if they have a car loan or if they have you know any sort of debt, you know all of a sudden their their debt costs are way higher. Um, their confidence is low. So against that backdrop, I mean it's very easy to see why everybody thought this holiday season was going to be a complete and utter dud. But the numbers are pretty good. I mean, MasterCard said Black Friday sales were up 12%. Online sales are up 14%. Adobe just said there was also positive growth. And that Cyber Monday was a massive day, a massive, massive, massive day. So Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, um, they were surprisingly strong, much better than expected, especially Cyber Monday and especially on the online segment, the in the e-commerce segment. So it's a bit of a conundrum, you know, how is the consumer spending so much uh, amidst, you know, what is supposed to be a time when they're not supposed to be spending a lot. And I think it comes back to this idea that the labor market is still pretty strong or very strong, really. There are layoffs and they're starting to happen, but the layoffs are in, in a lot of white collar jobs. And most Americans, you know, unemployment rate is still exceptionally low. So most Americans still have their jobs. And so they're still spending. So long as people have their jobs, they're going to keep spending. So I think people are really underestimating the strength of the U.S. economy. And this is why I do not believe that we are heading into a deep recession in 2023. This is an economy that has withstood the fastest, most aggressive, most rapid quantitative tightening pace ever. I mean, we've hiked rates from zero to basically four in 10 months. That's never happened before. It would happened once during the Volcker era, but that was a complete anomaly. Outside of that, this has never happened before. And the U.S. economy is still chugging along. The U.S. consumer is still chugging along, still spending big on Black Friday, Cyber Monday. The labor market is still super strong. So the economy doesn't get enough credit here, folks. The economy is very strong and it's weakening and it's slowing because that's what the Fed is trying to get it to do, weaken and slow. But it is so strong that I don't foresee an outcome here where we do go into a recession in 2023. And I think a, a deep recession, we could get a shallow recession, a little growth recession, growth scare. That's totally possible in 23, but not a deep recession. And I think that was strongly corroborated by the Black Friday, Cyber Monday numbers. The consumer drives 70% of the U.S. economy. If after a 45% crash in their portfolios, if after inflation goes 8%, if after, you know, a lot of studies out there have shown excess savings have been wiped, wiped out, if after all these layoff announcements from Meta and Twitter and Google and Amazon, even if after all that, the consumer still goes out and spends big on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you know, into the holiday season, that tells me this is a consumer that so long as they keep their job is going to keep spending. And this, this is a network effect. This is a wheel, right? If the consumer keeps spending, these companies are going to keep making money. They're going to keep having jobs. And so they're going to keep their jobs. And they're going to keep spending. It's a positive flywheel. And so I think that the, the confidence of the consumer, even though the confidence readings are really low, the money spent by the, the consumer is a very strong indicator for 2023 that we are not going to fall into some, some deep recession of sorts. And rather that if we do get a recession, it'll be very shallow. 
So I think that is a very positive read, again, for the U.S. stock market going into 2023. But specific to e-commerce stocks, uh, retail stocks, yeah, I've been really bullish on those going into the holiday season, especially e-commerce stocks. We're starting to see reacceleration in e-commerce growth trends. That the story of e-commerce was, you know, post 2000 and 2020, it was a steady growth industry. Just kept eating market share, right? 0%, 0.5%, 1%, 1.5%, 2%, 2.5%. It kept growing its share of the retail sales pie. So it was the steady 10% growth industry. Um, and then COVID happened and we put fuel on the fire and all of a sudden it went, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% growth. We started exploding higher because everybody shops online in 2020. And then 2021 rolled around and we're kind of like, I'm sick of shopping online. I got to go back to a mall. So we had this pent up demand to go out and shop in a mall to go to go to Target, go to Walmart, go do the, go to Costco, go do those things as opposed to buying them online. And we did that. And now we've been doing that for about 12 months. And now it's kind of like, all right, well, I'm sick and tired of that. Like, you know what? There's a reason I shopped online. So it's more convenient. So we, we've kind of normalized in our growth trend here where everybody was going out to the mall to shop. Everybody was staying at home to shop. Then we went out to the mall to shop. And now it's kind of normalized back. And we're back, I think, to that that 2000s, 2010s growth trend in e-commerce. So we had the excess growth, we had undergrowth, and now we're back to normal growth. That's about 10% plus for two quarters in a row now, starting the second quarter in 2022. Uh, e-commerce growth rates in the US have re-accelerated. So um, I think this re-acceleration into the holiday season, it's also an unusually bad flu season. It's like the worst flu season in over 10 years. Um, and gas prices are really high. You put all that together and I think you have a cocktail for e-commerce growth to really, really soar this holiday season. Indeed, you've seen Shopify report numbers. Look at Shopify stock. It's been, it's been rallying big over the past few days. And that's because they've been reporting really, 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 really strong numbers. Now, remember, Shopify is an e-commerce solutions provider for thousands of small merchants across the world. So they aren't just a read on Shopify. They're a read on all of these merchants. And if all of these merchants are seeing very exceptional e-commerce growth, to me, it means e-commerce is really going is really having and going to continue to have a very strong holiday season. And then you look at the chart for e-commerce stocks, you pull up the Amplify Online Retail ETF, you can see that that thing is completely round tripped to its COVID lows and has bounced off those lows. And I think it's ready to run. If you look at that chart, this the ETF has formed three very significant bottoms in its history. One was the bottom of the December 2018 bear market. Two was the bottom of the March 2020 bear market. And three was the bottom recently in the 2022 bear market. From each of those previous bottoms, we soared significantly, 50%, 60%, 70% or more. We're, we hit that bottom here in 2022. We're bouncing off it. I think e-commerce stocks have runway in 23. I think it's going to be a big up year for them. Shopify is a name that I really like. You know, Etsy is a very strong name in that category. Um, Chewy, I think, is really interesting. I, I think pet spending could, could go really parabolic in 23. So um, I think a lot of the e-commerce names that were pandemic darlings turned into post-pandemic complete losers are now ready to rebound in 2023 and have a very strong showing. So yeah, I, I am, am more bullish than ever on e-commerce stocks after seeing the Black Friday Cyber Monday numbers. So good economy, good jobs, fueling a boastful holiday season shopping spree, specifically though, with regards to Black Friday Cyber Monday, how much of the spending that we saw there comes from the habitual nature of Black Friday being a tradition. And the if we, as we've talked about on this show before, the chronocentric nature of, wow, this is a deal too good to pass up right now. 
Right. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously it's a habit. You, you can glean strengths from habits. So like in 2008, 2009, like those years were awful Black Friday years. Right. So um, it's not like just because it's Black Friday, it's going to be a great holiday showing. It's going to be a great sales number. No, um, you have to even in week in week years, you have bad growth on Black Friday. So it's not some of its habit, but what what is really impressive about the recent numbers is that they're just much better than expected. People were expecting zero growth, no growth. People weren't expecting real growth. I thought inflation 8% was going to outpace growth, but we're seeing that sales growth is outpacing inflation. So you're getting real growth in these numbers. And that's not what people expected. You're seeing significant growth in e-commerce. That's not what people expected. And so I think it's just everything right now is much better than expected for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. It was supposed to be a dud, and it's much better than a dud. It's very okay. And okay, relative <laughs> to expectations, is really, really, really good when you look at how cheap retail stocks have gotten, when you look at how cheap e-commerce stocks have gotten. Okay is enough to spark a big Santa rally for those names. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Luke, uh, this next one may seem a bit out of left field here, but can we talk about Disney? I know you're a huge fan of Disneyland. Uh, your kid loves it, but the company is struggling as they just kicked out their CEO and are bringing back an old time favorite CEO, Bob Iger. The stock is languishing near its COVID lows, which seems strange because all the articles I'm seeing seem to praise this move with many seeing it as a course correction, yet the stock uh, with the stock at these prices, the question really becomes, is it a buy? Right, right. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about Disney. I'm pulling up the chart on my computer here. Yeah, so Disney is, yeah, it's languishing at those COVID lows. Um, what I like, so Bob Iger is the man. He is a star. <laughs> and he knows what needs to be done here to write the, the or correct the course of the ship, if you will. Um, what happened is that Disney is really trying to build out its streaming section to become more of a technology company as opposed to a legacy company, and that's a smart move. Iger was a pioneer of that. Iger is very bullish on that. But the new CEO, the, now the old CEO, Ch uh, Bob Chappick, was much more uh, on the fence about that. And tried to balance everything. Uh, whereas Iger was like streaming, 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 streaming. Um, and so I think what you can expect when Iger comes back in control is that it's going to become a very streaming, once again, turn back into a very streaming first narrative. And when it was a streaming first narrative, the stock did very, very well. And I think the stock can do very well here. Uh, the valuation is really attractive on Disney stock. I think that you do have that travel bug going around. And so I think that Disneyland, Disney World, Disney Parks everywhere are going to do very well. Uh, Disney also has some big exposure in China. And so if China does reopen in 2023, that should benefit its, its Chinese business. Um, and then, again, I think the consumer remains strong. So I think they're going to continue to sell a lot of toys, a lot of merchandise, a lot of all that stuff. Um, and their movies, I think, are, you know, they have the best portfolio content out there. So uh, content portfolio out there. So I have no concerns about that. And on the streaming side of things, um, they got to spend to grow. They got to spend to grow. They got to spend to grow. And that's a strategy that has not been rewarded in 22 with rising interest rates. That falling interest rates should reward that strategy in 23. And so I think that Disney stock does look pretty attractive down here. $94, $93. Uh, let's pull up the the valuation on it because I'd love to look at where it is compared to its 
historical valuation levels. Um, and when I look at its forward PE multiple, you know, it's trading at 23 times forward earnings, which seems pretty expensive. But this is a stock that is a growth stalwart. Like it, it's able to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. It's got great brand equity. It's got a great name. Uh, and so 23 times forward earnings for a name like that it seems pretty strong, especially when I think those earnings estimates can move higher in 23 with, um, with uh, China reopening and with, I think, better than expected streaming growth. So I like Disney stock. I like the setup for Disney stock here. I think it's an attractive setup. I think Iger knows exactly what he's doing. I would bet on Iger. I'd bet on the stock. Um, I do like Disney at these levels. So is the levels that we're seeing right now a result of what Shapek did or a reaction to Iger coming back? Uh, neither really. No, it's, it, it's a result of just the fact that one, the international parts business has not been able to perform up to expectations because the consumer is weak everywhere else besides America. Uh, two, the streaming business, which had this super fast, hot start, has cooled off. And, you know, when things cool off, investors cool off as well and they start to sell the stock. And three, they're coming under a lot of cost pressure. So I think there's a multitude of fundamental factors which got the stock to these levels. Uh, the CEO had something to do with that, not everything. But the fact of the matter is Wall Street just has a lot of faith in Iger. And so they're willing to give a little bit more rope to the Iger-led Disney than to anybody else uh, leading Disney. And so I think them giving a little bit of rope, plus I think a lot of those factors will turn around. I think the consumer globally does strengthen in 23. And I do think that uh, cost pressures mitigate. And I also believe that the streaming business is now, again, a lot of these things had red hot growth, cooled off, and now they're going to normalize. Like the truth of the growth trend for a lot of streaming companies, for a lot of digital advertising companies, for a lot of e-commerce companies, the truth wasn't 2020, 2021. That was way too hot. And the truth was in 2022. That was way too low. It compensated. It overcompensated. So the truth is what 2023 will be. And I think it's going to be a much more normal, healthy, durable, sustainable growth rate. I think Disney Plus will get to that in 23 and that'll help the stock out. So the CEO switch up makes the headlines because people love talking about people, you know, make good characters. <laughs> but that's not why I would be buying the stock here. I mean, I think it's a it's part of the bull thesis, but really the bull thesis here is that with Disney stock, you have a very strong asset with a long history of operating excellence, uh, trading at a extremely discounted valuation uh, with major growth catalysts on the horizon in 2023. So you put all that in a bowl, and I think what comes out is is a stock that moves meaningfully higher next year. So I do like Disney stock for 2023. Okay. Uh, talking about Disney, that brings up an interesting observation you've had about the market recently. Uh, quote, the return of old school. The Dow, which is made up of 30 really big and really old companies, has significantly outperformed the NASDAQ, which is made up of hundreds of really small and often really new companies over the past two months. In fact, right. I think I read somewhere in your work that you'd have to go back to the dot-com crash to find a two-month period where the Dow has outperformed the NASDAQ more than what we're seeing right now. Is this the new market regime? Are we witnessing the revenge of old-school investments? Right. So that does seem to be, I mean, 
that's the investment ideology that is running everywhere right now is this idea that old school investing is coming back. The Dow is crushing the NASDAQ. This is a new bull market. And in this new bull market, the old school stocks are going to leave. The energy stocks, the commodity cyclicals, materials, uh, the Walmarts of the world, the Dow. The Dow is going to leave. And the NASDAQ, the stuff that has led, is, is going to lag. And I have trouble coming to grips with that because I'm of the firm belief, and the data strongly supports this belief, that what really drives stock prices is earnings. As go earnings, so go stock prices. Pull up a chart of any stock, put it up next to its earnings, and the correlation in its lifetime is going to be very, very strong. Pull up a chart of the S&P 500, pull up a chart of its earnings, S&P 500 EPS, graph that back to 1970, 1980, 1990, whatever time period you want, do a log scale so that you can actually see the changes, and you will see that it... The correlations, statistically, it's actually about 93%, the correlation between earnings and stock prices on the S&P 500. So it's a 93% correlation. So I firmly believe, based on the data, that earnings drive stock prices and everything else is pretty much noise. When you look at the earnings outlook for companies over the next two, three, four years, it's the technology stocks that are going to have the earnings growth. It's the new school stocks. I actually wrote wrote this down a little bit wider. Yeah, so if I if I look at these numbers, technology stocks are gonna grow earnings by info technology, uh, 11.3% next year and 13.1% in 2024. Meanwhile, if I look at an old school stock like energy, energy is actually supposed to see earnings drop 12.7% in 2023 and drop 12.3% in 2024. If I look at something like consumer staples, another old school type investment, 6% growth in 23, 7% growth in 24. But then if I look at a new school stock, communication services, that's where Netflix is, that's where Meta is, that's where Alphabet is, so new school companies, 10% growth next year, 17% growth in 2024. Meanwhile, old school healthcare, minus 2.5% next year, plus 7% in 2024. So when I look at these numbers, what I'm seeing is the earnings growth over the next two years is going to be concentrated in the tech sector. And so I think from that perspective, this idea that this return of old school investing, in order to believe that, you have to believe that the stocks that are going to perform over the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months best are going to be those that don't grow earnings the fastest, which would be counterintuitive to the history of the stock market for the past 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. So on that basis alone, I find it hard to believe that old school stocks are going to have this massive outperformance continue over the next several months, years, quarters, and years. Instead, I think what's happening is in 2022, energy had massive earnings growth. Technology had massive earnings growth deceleration. So you saw old school earnings accelerate in 2022 while new school earnings decelerated. And that's a COVID aftershock because in COVID, old school earnings got absolutely crushed while new school earnings soared. Now they compensated. Old school earnings bounced back from that big trowel. New school earnings dropped from that massive peak. 
Now I think we're past that overcompensation period and going into 2023, we're going to get normalization in the growth rates. That's what these numbers tell me. When I look at that and they say, okay, energy had massive earnings growth in 22. Now we're looking at negative earnings growth in 23 and 24. Technology, 11%, 13%, back to steady double-digit earnings growth. So I think we're going into 2023 with, where you're going to see normalization in the earnings growth trends for these sectors. And that's going to cause normalization in the stock price performance. So the Dow outperformance, in my opinion, is short-lived and actually a great reason to buy technology stocks today. If you graph the S&P 500 ratio, performance ratio over the, the Dow ever since 2000, so ever since the dot-com crash, ever since 2002, the S&P 500 Dow performance ratio has formed a solid and steady uptrend support line because tech stocks have continually, consistently grown faster, appreciated faster than non-tech stocks. Right now, we have fallen back. The S&P 500 to Dow performance ratio has collapsed back to its multi-year, 15-year support line. Every time it has done that, so long as the support line's been around, so 15 years, what has happened over the subsequent year is tech stocks have soared by 30%, 40%, 50%, or 60%. They've absolutely soared over the following year. So we've fallen back to that support line today. Actually, we fell back to it about a month ago. So we've fallen back to that S&P 500 divided by Dow performance ratio. We're at that support line. Are we going to break it or are we going to rebound and tech stocks going to soar? I say based on the earnings growth outlooks for these sectors, we're going to rebound and tech stocks are going to soar over the next year. So I think the return of old school investing is a narrative the media is using right now because it's what is happening right now. But I think it's a little bit late to that. We're in the ninth inning of the revenge of the old school investing trade. <laughs> Energy's already outperformed significantly in 2022. So of industrials, so of a lot of old school stocks. And I think that is now going to reverse course in 23 as the macroeconomic backdrop reverses 180 degrees. You know, that's what they mm. keep coming back to, Aaron, is that I think of this all as like a model, okay? Um, there are inputs and there are outputs. And in the global economic model, we are going to change the inputs by 180 degrees in 2023. Rising inflation is going to become falling inflation. That's a 180-degree turn on inflation. Rising interest rates are going to become falling interest rates. That's a 180-degree turn on interest rates. Rising treasury yields are going to become falling treasury yields. That's a 180-degree turn on, on treasury yields. Rising commodity prices are going to become falling commodity prices. That's a 180-degree turn on commodity prices. So if we do all of these 180-degree turns on the inputs, it only made sense that we're going to also do a 180-degree turn on the outputs. So what worked really well in 2022 will not work really well in 2023. And what didn't work really well in 2022 will work really well in 2023. So I think based on all that I just said, the return of old school investing, again, I think we're in the eighth or ninth inning of that and that tech stocks are actually ready to rebound and we're going to enter an investment regime 2023 plus that looks very much like 2010 plus. Okay. Uh, staying with your old with the old school theme, and you already, as you mentioned, energy stocks. Uh, right. We can we talk about oil? You've been bearish, and you've been right. right. Uh, oil topped out at one hundred twenty dollars a barrel. Everyone yes. was calling for two hundred. You were saying sixty five. Now we're at seventy five. So a lot closer to sixty five than two hundred. 
Uh, what's the next move for oil? And ultimately, what does it mean for energy stocks and the rest of the market? Right. So there, there's two things about oil. Uh, one thing is that oil is probably putting a floor in in the 70s because everybody knows the U.S. is going to come in and buy oil at $70 a barrel. So if it drops to 70, U.S. is going to come in and buy. And that's probably why if you look at the XLE, the energy uh, sector ETF, that's performed really, really well, given that oil has collapsed 40 percent, more than 40 percent. So that's pretty wild. What's the outlook for oil going for? Like I said, oil is put in a floor. But I think energy stocks are in a bit of a bubble right now. That again, if I go back to my energy, my uh, sector earnings outlook for the next two years, the only sector in the S&P 500 that is expected to see declining earnings both this year and next year is energy. Tech, plus 11, plus 13. Consumer discretionary is expected to blow up in the next two years. Really big growth. Industrials, plus 14, plus 12. Financials, plus 18, plus 9. Utilities, plus 5, plus 8. Consumer stables, plus 6, plus 7. Consumer service or, or communication services, plus 10, plus 17. And I look at energy, minus 13, minus 12. It's the only sector in the entire S&P 500 that is expected to see declining earnings over the next two years. Pull up a chart of the S&P 500 energy sector next to the S&P 500 energy earnings per share, annual basis. And you will see the two track one another. Energy stocks peak when, ener when earnings peak. Earnings are expected to peak in 2022. So I think energy stocks are actually due to peak in 2022 and will roll over in 23 and 24 as their earnings roll over too. Another thing here is that if you look at the, you talk, doing a lot of discussing uh, performance ratios and you know how things perform relative to one another. Well, it makes absolutely no sense very little sense that oil is down 40% from its highs, 120 down to 75. Yet energy stocks, oil and gas stocks are a stone's throw from their highs, 5% off their highs. The performance ratio between oil and energy stocks has become stretched in a manner that has only happened a few times in history. And every time it has happened before in history where oil prices collapsed without energy stocks collapsing. What happened next on the next page of that story was oil stocks eventually collapsed. Energy stocks eventually collapsed. It, oil didn't rebound. It was energy stocks collapsed. So when you look at that and you look at the earnings outlook, I'm not terribly constructive on the energy sector going into 2023 because I think that it outperformed in 21. It outperformed in 22. Now we're at pink earnings. Now you're seeing oil roll over. Now you're seeing inputs to the global economic model reverse 180 degrees. I think that, you know, the outlook for energy stocks should change dramatically in 23. And as it does, I think those stocks are going to reverse course sharply. Why aren't they correcting already? Well, you know, people always wait to the very last minute to get out of a winning trade. They wait to the music <laughs> stop. Uh, look at tech stocks. Tech stocks soared 2020, 2021. It wasn't until the very end of 2021, into the very beginning of 2022, that these tech stocks started to collapse. And then once they started to fall, they they fell. And they fell and they <laughs> fell and they fell and they fell and they fell. And it was a falling knife. But up until the very last moment, it looked like this was going to the, the stratosphere and never coming back down. So I think that energy is in late 22 where tech was in late 21. And tech is 
in late 21, where energy or in late 22, where energy was in early 2020, completely disregarded. Everybody thought it was, you know, dead forever, dead and gone, moving past that. Uh, and it was the really smart money went in and bought energy investments in early 2020 and held them all the way to now. Those people made massive money. Congrats to those folks. Um, I think they're pure geniuses. It's a really, really smart trade. And now I think we're getting the flip side of it. Energy trade has played out. Now it's time to get the, you know, get contrarian on the, on the stuff that's beaten up. So that's where I stand on oil. That's where I stand on energy. Again, I don't think oil is going to collapse to 50, 40, 30. There's a floor on oil because the U.S. is going to become a buyer to refill the SPR at some point. And that's right around 70. So I think there's a floor on oil of 65, 70. I think that's where the floor is. But I think we're going to test that floor. And I think given that oil is already down 40, 45% from its highs, and if it gets to 65, looking about a 50% drawdown, given that, and, you know, the XLE is 5% off its highs, you know, there's a lot of room for XLE to fall, especially given earnings are, are expected to collapse over the next two years. So color me pretty bearish on, on energy stocks as we head into 23. <laughs> um, I think they may have some runway in the first quarter, but I think going into the second, third, fourth quarters into 24, I think it's a trade that collapses. Okay. Well, shifting from the old school to the new school, you're bearish on energy, but I know that you're super bullish on clean energy technologies, ultimately replacing oil. And we're seeing a lot of those stocks really outperform in 2022. You're bullish on this theme going into 2023. Can you throw us a bone and give us a few stocks that you're eyeing for a big 23 in the clean tech energy sector? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, for sure. Let's talk about... so. What's really interesting is that for the first time ever in 2022, renewable energy capital investment by all companies across the world uh, exceeded capital investment in oil and gas. That, that, that never happened. Believe it or not, that had never happened before. Every single year, companies spent more capital money on oil and gas infrastructure and operations than on renewable energy infrastructure and operations every single year for the forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Then in 2021, they became neck and neck. It was about even. Now in 2022, renewables are way higher, which is weird given how much oil and gas stocks have performed this well, how much oil is up, how much you've heard about, you know, the energy trade, all that crap. Um, despite all that that you've heard, Renewable energy investment actually jumped significantly more in 22 than oil and gas investment. So to me, what that means is, okay, we had this massive energy crisis in 2022, and it's not going to abate anytime soon. So we got to find a solution for it. There were two solutions available. One, pump a lot more oil and natural gas and go back to that. Or two, accelerate the energy transition and really try to make solar, wind, hydrogen, batteries work together to create a new energy economy. Which, you know, it's a fork in the road. What turn are you going to make? <laughs> mm -hmm. What we're seeing is every company, every country across the world is choosing the energy transition. They are not – there's no new legislation out there saying let's go pump more oil and gas. All the legislation you're seeing – out of Europe, out of America, out of Canada, out of China, everywhere is let's accelerate our energy, our clean energy efforts. Let's restart the nuclear plants. Let's, you know, give more funding to solar. Let's create investment tax credits for solar production tax credits for, for hydrogen. Let's, let's install investment tax credits for uh, energy storage, standalone energy storage projects. That's all the legislation you've seen in 2022, not let's go give more money to oil and gas production. That's not been a thing. We hit a fork in the road and we chose. Governments across the world chose. 
So I don't see why we would align ourselves against all these governments that are saying, you know what? We came across an energy crisis and what we're going to do is we're going to accelerate the energy transition. We're not going to go back to oil and gas and do more of that. We're going to find new ways to, to make more energy. Align yourselves with that decision because these are legislative pieces that are enacted for 10, 15, 20 years. And I think that you really want to get behind that, invest alongside that. And that's where solar stocks come in. That's where hydrogen stocks come in. That's where energy storage stocks come in. I think these stocks, which have been big beneficiaries in 2022 of favorable legislation in response to the energy crisis, will continue to work very well as we go into 2023 and will be some of the market's biggest winners throughout the 2020s. So a few names in that. Let's talk about, you know, the three categories we like are solar, hydrogen, and energy storage. So in the solar realm, you have Solar Edge. That's SEDG is the ticker. That's a really strong microinverter optimizer maker. They essentially have the a chokehold on the market for creating these little devices that allow these panels to work as best as they can. Solar panels to work as best as they can. Uh, optimizers and microinverters. So I like Solar Edge as a picks and shovel supplier for the solar industry. The stock's been doing well. I think continues to do well in 2020. Uh, three Enphase is another name that's been a leader in that space, probably will continue to do very well. Names like Array Technologies or, um, uh, well, Array Technologies is a big one that they do the trackers, solar tracker technology. So, you know, how solar panels rotate, they, they build the stuff that allows them to rotate. Uh, I think that, you know, that's a really interesting name. So there's a lot of names in solar that I think can do very, very well. If you're not, you know, privy to any of the specific name, you don't want to get any specific name. TAN, the solar ETF, uh, TAN is the ticker. That's a great way to play it. That chart looks really good. I think that those stocks are ready for a big breakout here. Going into hydrogen, a leader that we've talked about, of course, is Plug Power. PLUG is the ticker. Plug is a fantastic company. Um, they are building essentially the foundation for the new hydrogen economy. They started by making... Uh, uh, this funny as it sounds, hydrogen fuel cells for for forklifts, um, mm -hmm. and they just dominated that market because that's a, a market where hydrogen technology made a lot of sense because hydrogen is ultra dense; it doesn't have to have much downtime; it, it recharges very quickly. So, uh, hydrogen fuel cells make a lot of sense in something like a forklift that is constantly running around. You don't need it to be down that you you can't afford for it to be down all that often. You need it up and running. You need it to lift, do a lot of work. So hydrogen fuel cells made a lot of sense there. Plug power dominated that market, developed the technical expertise in hydrogen and has since just blossomed out into this massive hydrogen company that today the thing we're most excited for them about is just green hydrogen production. They are just acquiring and creating massive facilities to make a lot of green hydrogen. So they're becoming the fuel company for the hydrogen economy. And that is spectacular. So I really like plug power PLUG as a long-term investment for the next five, 10 years. I think it's a, it's a winning stock. And then moving on to energy storage, a name we've talked about here on this podcast before is Fluence. FLNC is the ticker. Uh, Fluence is the leader in lithium ion battery energy storage. And that's where we think all the growth is going to be in lithium ion batteries because there are alternative chemistries out there and alternative uh, methodologies for energy storage. But the fact of the matter is lithium ion is the cheapest and lithium ion is the most established and lithium ion is, is where all the uh, production capacity is because that's where electric vehicles are, are made on top mm. of, right? They're made on top of lithium ion batteries. So we spent decades figuring out lithium ion batteries for electric vehicles. That means we're really good at lithium ion batteries. It makes sense to only take all that expertise and make them batteries for energy storage as well. So we think lithium ion batteries are going to be the biggest 
growth segment of the battery energy storage industry. And in that world, Fluence is the commercial leader. So really like what they're doing um, um, at that company and think that stock is going to be a big winner. So there's the bone I'm throwing. There's a few <laughs> stocks that I really like for the clean tech revolution. But broadly speaking, I just think that um, the clean energy investment over the next decade is going to be the, the biggest and most profitable investment on Wall Street. Um, I think these companies are going to rewrite the rules of the global energy economy, create a new energy economy, and that by 2030, uh, a bulk of energy requirements in uh, developed economies are going to be produced and uh, met by clean energy. So very bullish on that. Hmm. Well, thank you for throwing those names our way. Uh, I want to wrap things up by asking about quantum computing. Uh, because this past weekend, I saw that the front page of Barron's had a big quantum computing article on it. The article talked about how quantum computing is going to change the game for just about everything, uh, but also how it's still very early in the revolution. Uh, with it being so early, can you give us a quick rundown on quantum computing, what it is, why you're excited, and what the investments are? Yeah, so quantum computing is one of those things that is... Um, it is going to be the biggest technological revolution of our lifetimes, but it's so early, it's tough to understand or see where the industry is going to go in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, the basics of it are, there are, are two rules of the world, scientific rules of the world. There are classical rules, which are the rules that we abide by you and me as as people and, and dogs and pretty much all um, animate objects abide by um, and then there's a different set of rules for subatomic particles so the very the smallest things on in the world how do they live what rules do they abide by the subatomic particles that make up you and me um, and they abide by a completely different set of rules called quantum rules or quantum mechanics and those rules are almost uh, superhuman, um, almost uh, like it's like they have superpowers, so to speak. So uh, the, the two big things here are entanglement and superpositioning. And entanglement is this – or superpositioning, it's easier to explain first, is this idea that subatomic particles can exist in multiple places at once until they're observed. Right. So classical mechanics, the rules you and I abide by, I can only be here with you on this podcast or in Baltimore with you. I can't be in both places at once. I can mm -hmm. only be in one place at one time. Uh, in quantum mechanics, subatomic particles can actually exist in multiple places at once until they're observed. And this is the whole thing about Schrodinger's cat, right? You don't know if the cat is alive or dead until you open the box and you open the box and you find out it's alive or dead. But when you close the box, the cat can simultaneously be both alive and dead. Totally weird, totally magical. <laughs> like it's just weird, right? But it's true. And this is something that scientists have tried to explain for decades and decades and decades and decades. And even you know, about a hundred years ago, it stumped Einstein. So this is a really complex concept. And if you're look, if you're thinking about what I'm saying, you're like, this guy is talking hocus pocus. I, it sounds like I am talking hocus pocus, but it's true. Mm -hmm. It's scientific fact that subatomic particles can exist in multiple places at once until they are observed. That's called superpositioning. And then entanglement is this idea that, okay, 
these subatomic particles, they can exist in multiple places at once until they're observed. Well, all of those states depend on one another and can work together. They become entangled. So you can have one subatomic particle exist in five different states. Another subatomic particle exists in five different states. Well, these, these states then are dependent upon these states, which is dependent upon these states. So you create this whole entangled network of all of these subatomic particles in their theoretical states. And that's the, the idea of entanglement. So with superpositioning and entanglement, the way I like to think of it is, okay, you can, in classical mechanics, there is a Superman. And that Superman is, there's only one Superman and he can fight crime in only one city and one time, one crime, one city. That's it. In quantum mechanic world, you have multiple Superman, supermen that are fighting crime all over the world and many different cities fighting many different crimes all at once. In the classical mechanics world, you still have crime everywhere because there's only one Superman. In the quantum mechanics world, you don't have crime anywhere because Superman is solving every crime everywhere all at once. There's multiple of him all working together. That analogy, I think, is the best way to frame the jump from classical computers to quantum computers. Mm -hmm. Classical computers are built using one Superman. They have bits that can be either one or zero, and that's how we store information, how they do work. And so they can do tasks. They can act like Superman, but it's only one Superman. With mm -hmm. a quantum computer... You have qubits, which can store information as both ones and zeros, and they can work with other qubits. And you have a bunch of supermen working together to solve some problem. So obviously, the computational power of a computer built on quantum mechanics, a quantum computer, is exponentially greater than the computational power of a classical computer. And so for the past decade, 15, 20 years, actually, scientists, technologists, companies have been trying to figure out, okay – how do we harness the power of quantum mechanics to make quantum computers that we can control and that can actually do things that a classical computer would take hundreds, thousands of years to do or could never even ever do? That research is now coming to a head where we are starting to get a first iteration of usable quantum computers that are solving real world tasks such as cybersecurity, such as um, uh uh, synthetic biology, DNA synthesis, um, such as electric vehicles. So electric vehicles is one of the biggest applications of quantum computing right now that a lot of the, the science behind electric vehicles and battery chemistry is simulation to figure out, okay, what chemistries work best to create a battery? Um, that simulation works significantly better if you have a quantum computer doing it because it has way more computational power. So you can run infinitely more simulations on an electric vehicle battery and different battery chemistries to come up with better battery chemistries. And also even there's a company, oh, what was the company that just signed up with IBM? I don't know. It was two weeks ago, a company signed up with IBM to uh, simulate, uh, use quantum computers to simulate battery chemistries to not just create better batteries, but actually maybe manufacture lithium or manufacture a lithium substitute. So as opposed to mm -hmm. mining lithium, we can actually create lithium out of more abundant stuff. So this is the sort of stuff quantum computing can unlock. And a lot of people have said it's going to be bigger than the discovery of fire, as big as the discovery of the wheel. And I believe that's fundamentally true because the entire world is built on computers. 
we are having this conversation through computers. Everybody is listening to this conversation through computers. When we trade stocks now, we trade them through computers. When we analyze and we analyze them on computers. When we talk to our friends, we talk to our friends through computers. When we watch entertainment, we watch entertainment through computers. Everything is through computers these days or computations. And when you change that computation from classical bleh, to quantum, rawr, <laughs> mm -hmm. all of a sudden you fundamentally change everything. And that's a transition we are starting to undergo, but it's a transition that's going to take 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. It's a, it's a transition that's going to take a very, very long time. So the winners of the quantum computing revolution or the quantum revolution, as I like to call it, will be huge winners, but they're going to take time to bake. Okay, This cake is not going to happen overnight. And you need to be patient. There are some quantum stocks out there right now. IonQ, Arcit Quantum, Rigetti Computing, D-Wave. There are some out there right now. If you're going to be invested in those, you have to be invested with significant patience. On the understanding, this is a stock that's not going to blow off anytime soon. But in five years, seven years, eight years, could be about 100 times higher than where it is today. So that's the philosophy you have to take with quantum computing. What I would do is I would get in those quantum computing stocks and I'd say, okay, this is money I don't need for 10 years. I'll put a little bit away. I'll stow it there and I'll see what happens in 10 years. I think that's the approach you have to take with quantum computing at this point in time. And I'm assuming that there's also a scenario where these companies today are merely just paving the way for the better companies down the line in that timeline correct? Uh, yeah, entirely so. Entirely so. I think there is definitely um, all the companies that are out there today in quantum computing are not going to exist forever. But I think one thing that's a little bit different, that's a little bit more nuanced is uh, quantum computing is, I mean, the science is so complex. So what the head start these companies have is a defensible head start. Um, if a company today is building workable, usable quantum computers, that's a defensible head start. And that, that company will probably be around for a long time, so long as it secures the funding to be around. Um, because again, like I said, the science is so complex. And if you figure it out, if you crack the nut and you're just working on the scaling problem right now, you're light years ahead of everybody else. So um, that's one thing I will say about these early first movers is I do think they have a first mover advantage that it's very defensible. All right. Well, that covers all our topics, but we have a few fan questions. Starting off with Shane Johnson, a.k.a. The Cork Dork. Hi, Luke. SoFi and DNA have just hit all-time lows. I get SoFi. Biden just torpedoed the stock by extending the student debt moratorium until June of 2023. However, my question is this. Even if the Fed slows down the rate hikes in 2023, won't the elevated interest rates continue to put downward pressure on these high-growth stocks? Um, okay, let's let's talk about um, Ginkgo and SoFi. And then I'm going to ask you to read the second part of that question again, because sure. I think it's a mm -hmm. small question as well. Um, SoFi, yeah, Biden postponed the student loan moratorium. Like, geez, man, seriously, ugh, whatever. But <laughs> I think the thing with SoFi is that it's just a neobank for the next decade. It doesn't need the student loan business. The numbers this year have shown that. It's still growing very, very, very quickly. It's still seeing expanding profit margins. It's still, you know, like everything there is still going in the right direction, trending in the right direction. It's just a stock that the market loves to hate right now. And I love to buy stocks that the market loves to hate. The time to buy energy stocks, again, was in 2020 when the market hated them, not mm. in late 2022 when the market loved them. 
You're, mm. you're kind of playing the game of musical chairs and the music's going to stop pretty soon. I like to get in stocks before the game of musical chairs even starts. So um, the market loves to hate SoFi right now, yet SoFi is a fantastic business that is growing users very, very quickly, is getting those users to use more products at a very healthy rate, is getting users to pay up for those products at a very healthy rate, is seeing its revenues grow very quickly, is seeing its EBITDA margins expand very quickly. So all the fundamental KPIs, key performance indicators for SoFi, are pointing in the right direction for me. And with the stock just going lower and lower and lower and printing all-time lows, below five bucks, I'm just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. That's my strategy with it because I think in a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, it's a 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 50, $100 stock. I think that's what it does. We just had the wipeout. We're getting wiped out. Buy it. You know, this is the insiders are buying. I'm with them. So I think this stock goes significantly higher because I think they built a product which people will fundamentally use more of in the future. Good products develop or good products produce good revenue streams, which allow companies to produce great profits, which allow stock prices to go higher. So I'm investing in a great product with SoFi. And that's what I'm invested in. Um now with Ginkgo Bioworks, I think the synthetic biology narrative is still very, very, very strong. There's been a lot of insider selling recently. And so I think that explains the move lower in the stock. The insiders have started unloading a lot. But to me, when I look at the insider unloading, they've reduced stakes by 10 to 20%. Um, and this is all founders selling. So it's specifically, I believe it's three or four founders that have sold about 10 to 20% of their stakes. What you have to understand about a founder, and you know, these are kids that were in college that founded this company, and then this is all they've done their whole lives, basically. Their entire compensation is tied up in their stock comp. I, you know, These guys are not getting paid massive salaries to compensate for what they built. They're getting paid in stock. This is the first time in 15 years they're allowed to sell that stock. Wouldn't you sell some? If you put 15 years into a company, it's become a success, it's publicly traded, it's this multi-billion dollar corporation, and you own 100 million shares, 70 million shares, 60 million shares, after 15 years, wouldn't you sell some just to enjoy life a little bit? Even if you think the stock's going up, wouldn't you sell a little bit just to have a little bit of money, You know, enjoy the fruits of your labor? Of course you would. I would. Even if I <laughs> thought Ginkgo were going to go from $2 to $50 in two years, I still would sell a little bit here just to have some money and enjoy life and, you know, go on a vacation, buy a home, do whatever make, whatever they're going to do with their money. I think mm. that makes sense, especially if the economy does get rough in 23. It would be nice to have that cash. So I think it makes completely complete sense that the insiders at Ginkgo are selling. I'm not worried about it. Um, I, the company's still growing very quickly. Again, another company where the KPIs are all going in the right direction. Uh, and I, I like that. And so I think Ginkgo, you know, below $2 is, is, a, is a fabulous long-term buy. So really bullish on, on that stock. And then can you repeat the, the second part of your question? <laughs> the actual question. Uh, yeah. Even if the Fed slows down the rate hikes in 2023, won't the elevated interest rates continue to put downward pressure on these high growth stocks? Um, no, I, I don't think so. No, what matters is, is the trend of rates and the trend of yields. And um, as soon as the Fed starts to slow down and as soon as the Fed pauses and then the Fed eventually cuts, that that's a reversal of the trend. That's a reversal of the rate trend. That's a reversal of the yield trend. You're going to see yields and tradable rates move lower, and that's going to cause uh, tech stocks to, to move significantly higher, especially high growth stocks. So um, 
even if the Fed goes higher with rates in 2023, they're going to go higher at a slower pace. And the bond market's already sniffing that out. You've seen yields lose about 60 basis points off their highs. If yields keep going lower, high growth stocks should benefit. Okay. Uh, our next question from Alex Andrade. Hey, Luke, what's your analysis about the fintech company Upstart Holdings and the overall health of the credit markets? What will it take for financial institutions to increase their lending volumes to borrowers in 2023 while maintaining risk? Upstart is a name that we have not gotten bullish on yet because it is supposedly a brand new way to price risk AI driven credit models. And that sounds great. And they work great in good times, but we are entering rougher times. We are entering an era that we haven't been in for quite some time with higher interest rates and higher yields and um, now higher default rates. So when we're in that era, upstarts models simply aren't tested. They aren't real world tested. They aren't battle proven. Um, and it's it's kind of similar to the Open Door situation where it's like Open Door has this eye buying model that works really well when the housing market is going up, but it's not truly battle tested in a market that is, you know, going down for a while. And you've seen that stock get crushed because Wall Street doesn't have faith in that model. Now we have faith that based on a deep analysis of that model, we have faith in the Open Door model and believe it well survived this rough patch. And as a result, once this rough patch is over, the stock is going to absolutely soar. Upstart could follow the same situation. Upstart could have an AI-driven model that well survived this rough patch in the credit markets. And then once the credit markets get better, it could absolutely soar. That absolutely could happen. But I have not done enough due diligence with its models and sat down with them to have faith that they well survive through this era without significant pain. And until I, I actually do that, I am not willing to say the market's wrong in saying that upstarts models aren't going to survive through this high rate environment. So um, I think that's a name you want to continue to be cautious on unless you yourself have done a significant deep dive into their AI models and understand, okay, they are going to work and everything's going to be okay. I myself have not done that yet. And therefore I'm willing to go with the market for now to say, eh, probably rougher waters ahead for this name. Okay. And our last question from Stephen Polk, do you think quantum scape will rebound? Absolutely. I, absolutely. Like QuantumScape is, by, in my mind, the, the technical data clearly shows that QuantumScape is the leader in solid state electric vehicle batteries. No other company, to my knowledge, is successfully building and showing data, successful good data for multi-layer solid state battery cells. These guys are doing that. QuantumScape is doing that. They're showing you the data. They have multi-layer solid-state battery cells that are working. I don't think anybody else has that. So they're the technical leader. They're the technology leader in electric vehicle solid-state batteries. It's going to take time for that tech lead to turn into massive commercial success, but it is going to happen or it is likely going to happen. And therefore, while I don't think QuantumScape has immediate near-term rebound potential, I do think this stock is a fantastic long-term investment with significant upside potential 
by 2027, 2028, 2029, 2030. And even before then, it should benefit from a switching of the, the interest rate regime uh, in, the, in the economy. Remember, this was a stock that bounced to, what, 120 when it first spacked. Um, in, a, in an environment with almost zero interest rates. Since then, the company has proven that its technology is, is even better than it was back then and continues to improve every single week, every single month. So because of that, I think the stock, yeah, it shouldn't go back to 120, but the market did put it there at one point in time because it believed it was a leader in electric vehicle solid-state batteries. It still is a leader. The market has just changed. And I think as the market changes back, the stock could rebound significantly. But I'm not really in it because I think the market regime is going to change a minute because this is a technology leader in a space that could fundamentally reshape electric vehicles as we know it. And the economic implications of that are significant in the billions and billions and billions of dollars for revenues and profits for this firm. So because of that, it's a company I view as a moonshot. It's a company I'm like, okay, let's, you know, let's put money in, let's check in on five years. And I think it, it'll, it'll work out for the better. All right. Well, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, any last words before we wrap? Uh, we are an hour and eight into this, one of our longer ones recently. And um, on that note, no, I, I don't have many, many words outside of I think that the market is is trying to find its footing here after a pretty big bear beating in 2022. And I do think 2023 is going to be a record year for stocks. and It's going to be a very, very, very strong year. So don't be discouraged by sideways downish price action in these last few days, these last few weeks. Um, I would get in and I would accumulate and I would now prep myself for what should be a pretty big rally in, in 2023. You know, we have 100 years of market data that tells us what investors should be doing at a time like this. Stocks are down 25%. Tech stocks are down 30%. What happens next? 100% of the time, stocks rally over a multi-year window. So if you're a multi-year investor, the one thing you should be doing right now is buying. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in our comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And as always, see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye, all.